0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement, at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Caleb Kaltenbach. Uh, New author. Yeah. First book, right? First book. First book. Uh, And Caleb is a pastor in California. And you've kind of roamed around, haven't you? I have. I was in L.A.
2: First full time job for eleven years, and came to Dallas, Texas. Then I figured people in California needed to hear about Jesus too, so went back
1: there. Okay, very good. And you're in Simi Valley now. At is it Discovery Church? At Discovery Church in Simi Valley. Okay. Well, the book that we're going to discuss is actually about Caleb's life, if we can say it that way, and it's entitled "Messy Grace." Here it is. Um, And the subtitle is, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. So kind of the good combination, you got a nice endorsement here from the top I see from Jack Graham of Prestonwood Baptist Church. And uh, this – our – my relationship with Caleb goes back to times when I was teaching in the summers out at Talbot Biola, and uh, I remember you telling me your story in the car as we were driving going to lunch one day and just talking about uh, about future and ministry and that kind of thing so um, so let's start at the beginning um, uh, it says um, you had gay parents so so how, tell us your story
2: Yeah well uh, both my uh, parents were uh, professors at a university. Um, my dad taught philosophy law and rhetoric my mom taught uh, English literature. Uh, in Columbia, Missouri. So I'm a Tigers uh, fan. I'm also a Chiefs fan. We okay. don't talk about that much. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we are proud of the Royals, though. We okay. are proud of the Royals. Congratulations, but that's yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm a Houston Astros fan, so that was painful, but we did give them the best <laughs> series of any of the teams. There so. you go,
2: man. Yeah. There you go. So when I was two, my parents uh, divorced, and uh, both of them. Uh, came out of the closet. My dad was a bit more in the closet with me. I didn't find out till around college, graduation, maybe a little bit after, but my mom uh, was very loud and proud. My dad was uh, in the closet with, uh, as I said myself, I had different relationships, but mm-hmm. my mom had a 22-year relationship with a woman named Vera who mm-hmm. had just graduated with her PhD in psychology. Mm. They moved to Kansas City, and uh, whereas my dad, uh, you know, was was very quiet, didn't have a lot of friends. My mom had a ton of friends. She uh, practically, for all purposes of the word, became an activist. Mm. Uh, she joined the local chapter board of directors for GLAD in Kansas City. Mm. Growing up in elementary school and uh, preschool, she took me with her to uh, gay parties and clubs and campouts and events, and I have march on gay pride parades. And mm. I remember at the end of one of these pride parades, and again, this is in the 1980s, There were all these Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, go away, turn or burn. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine on people. Hmm. And I remember, you know, looking at my mom and I said, Mom, why are they acting like that? Mm -hmm. She said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. Mm -hmm. Christians don't like people that are not like them. And so I just saw this reinforced in so many different ways that I describe in the book and in ways that I don't even describe in the book, where families ended up alienating their sons who had AIDS. We watched people in my mom's community die of that. We watched their Christian parents alienate them. And it just really hardened my heart, so much to the point to when I was 16 years old, I just really wanted to go on a rampage to disprove Christianity. Uh, my worldview was out of control. Um, my hair uh, was all the way down to my shoulders. Which so it's changed. It, it has. The, the Lord has taketh away and added other yep, places. Yeah, like we the belly. know what that's like. That's right. So, we. Um, I I was invited to this Bible study led by a high schooler uh, made up of high schoolers and I went to this Bible study and my plan was to be a ninja Christian and to pretend to be a Christian and Mm -hmm. then I would dismantle their arguments. Mm. And I still remember uh, we were all reading from 1 Corinthians and I had never owned a Bible before and I grabbed one of my dad's old Bibles and I was in 1 Chronicles. And when I read (laughs) 1 Chronicles, they said, where are you? And I said, 1 Chronicles and they said, oh. Well, you're in the Old Testament. I said. So, is there a new one? I guess there's updated (laughs) 2.0. That's
1: right, exactly.
2: And uh, I just kept on going back, and I just found that Jesus was not like the people on the street corners. The Apostle Paul was not like the people on the street corners holding up the signs. And I became I became convicted about who Jesus was. I still remember um, when I. came to Christ, I told my parents uh, that I had been baptized. That was a secret operation too. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they both basically, you know, grounded me and were so upset. A week later, I was at a youth camp, uh, C.I.Y., Christian Youth Conference, and gave my life to the ministry, and I had also reached the conclusion, the conclusion I still hold today, that God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in the context of marriage mm-hmm. between one man and one woman. And I told my parents I was going to go into ministry and that this is what I believe about sexuality, Mm -hmm. and they basically disowned me. Mm. I spent a lot of nights over at friends' houses um, until the tension died down. My mom and her partner, I went over and saw them once uh, after all this had happened and didn't go back for two or three, maybe four months even. Mm. Um, But God slowly rebuilt that relationship, and I went to Bible college uh, in southern Missouri, preached at several churches. Um, but again, I saw this negative attitude within the church towards uh, people who identified as LGBT. I remember in this one country church I preached at in a small town in Missouri, uh, I preached there on the weekends while I was in Bible college for 18 months. Uh, it was probably the largest church per capita in the entire world. There were 50 people in the town. We had 25 of them in church, in church, you know, so we had half the town, one to Christ. Hmm. Uh, Uh, I kept on trying to convince my mom to come, and she came one Sunday, and our church attendance spiked to 26. It was a huge one for the books. (laughs) And the next Sunday when I showed up, two elders were waiting for me and took me to the back room and said this is all before the sermon, if you want to keep preaching here, don't ever bring somebody like that again. Mm. We don't like those people." Well, as you can imagine, that was my last Sunday there because mm-hmm. I quit. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I don't want to be a part of a church like that. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going out to Los Angeles for 11 years, a church called Shepherd of the Hills or Shepherd Church. That's mm-hmm. where I met you when mm-hmm. I was involved there. And uh, got married, uh, went to Talbot, had two kids, eight and six. Moved to Dallas, Texas for three and a half years, started working on that D-Men at DTS, started preaching, and my parents, separate of each other, moved down to uh, Dallas, Texas to be closer to our, to our family. My mother's partner had died of cancer a few years earlier, and she was depressed. And so what was really amazing was they started attending the church that I was preaching at. Mm and we left the summer of 2013 to go back and uh, to California to pastor and lead Discovery Church. Two weeks before we left, both of my parents gave their lives to the Lord. Hmm. And it, it was an incredible journey, and it's still incredible. I mean, they believe in Jesus. I really believe that completely. They have different theological perspectives. Uh, they, they lived in quote-unquote same-sex relationships in some way, shape, or form for over 30 years of their life. Hmm. Uh, it's not something... That turns off. I think you and I have talked before about hardwired versus softwired, mm-hmm. and you know how's all that go together. I mm-hmm. don't know. I, I, God has never called me uh, to change someone's sexual orientation or to resolve the tension. God has called me to point people to Jesus and and walk in the tension of grace and truth.
1: Mm-hmm. Now let's let's uh, deal with the timeline a little bit. Your parents got divorced when you were what age? Two. Two. Okay, so you literally did grow up in in a situation in which at least one of your parents was uh, openly gay as you were growing up. Yes, and, and there's you don't even remember a time when that was not the case. No, I don't. Yeah, and you know it's funny
2: when I got older, I had my wanderings about my dad. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, come on, who's gonna have three gay parents? Yeah, I guess this guy does. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Hmm. So uh, and when did you – so you knew about your mom all the way through? When did you you said you found out about your dad in your teenage years? Did I get that right? Or, no, probably or
2: uh Around college graduation, okay. if not a little after, I found out, um, and that was a very difficult time, as I'm sure you can imagine. There was mm-hmm. a lot to process there.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, what I'm what I'm hearing in your your story it, are, are really several things uh, one is just the the experience of being on the other end on the receiving end from from Christians who let's say are, are hostile towards gay lifestyle um, and then um, you're learning to work through that mm-hmm. and then um, your approach as you think about um, interacting with LGBT people, given the nature of your own experience. So let's kind of go at those one at a time. Uh, um, you felt real hostility. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you saw what we might in some cases call the worst of people. It, it, your subtitle here says that um, – how a pastor with gay parents learn to love others without sacrificing conviction. So the last phrase is is interesting part of this, without sacrificing conviction. So you you look at this and you go, all right. So how do you maintain this balance between uh, loving others and and having conviction? How does that, how does that work for you?
2: You know, I think uh, there are so many different components. Uh, first of all, one of the points I make in the book is I believe that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. Mm-hmm. That uh, I believe that we are called to accept everybody mm-hmm. as an individual. That does not mean we approve of every life choice that somebody makes. I think that especially parents of teenagers who come out to them, Christian parents, um, you know, or really any parents that may not agree with the choice to be in a same-sex relationship Uh, would would have a problem with that. And so they believe, okay, if I accept my child, that means that I'm approving. And my point is no. Uh, Every Sunday, anybody should be able to walk through my church doors when I preach and attend our church. But I already know that I shake hands every Sunday with people that have made life choices that week that I wouldn't approve of. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I accept them any less. And so our church uh, really focuses on trying to be a church where you can belong before you believe, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. not saying that we integrate people into the body of Christ without, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, without salvation, but we give people a chance. Uh, to be a part of our community. Mm -hmm. And that's where we really try to live out that acceptance versus approval. We give people a chance to be a part of our community because if we are going to call people eventually when they follow Christ to uh, primarily identify with the church community and not the LGBT community, we had better have them comfortable and ready. To primarily identify, because I don't think many people will leave one community if they don't have another one to walk into. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a real tension between acceptance and approval. I think that there's a tension between grace and truth. I think that we have to own the fact that uh, it isn't our job to change somebody's sexual orientation. It is our job to uh, speak the truth into people's lives. Um, And I think also at the same time, Daryl, I think that we need to understand people from their perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a missionary goes overseas and, uh, you know, is going to share the gospel with a particular culture, uh, they have to do contextualization. They have to learn culture. They have to engage culture, not as a means to water down the gospel, but as a means to use culture as a vessel to share the gospel, to communicate it. And I think that a lot of Christians are not, for one reason or another, willing to do that when it comes to certain people, including the LGBT community. I remember a conversation that I had with my mom one time, and this is awkward. Nobody wants to have this conversation with her mom, but somehow she told me, you know, Caleb, Vera and I, we were not intimate the last several years of our relationship. And that blew me away. I said, well, then, you know, why why do you still call yourself a lesbian? You're not a lesbian. She said, well, sure I am. That's my community. Those are my people. I have acceptance. I have relationships. I'm part of a cause and a movement. And I said, well, mom, you just described the church. And she said, no, I didn't why would I go somewhere that would make me feel less about myself?
3: Hmm.
2: It really dawned on me then that the biggest issue, and I think the biggest cultural issue that we have in our society today, and maybe we always have had, is the issue of identity. That's why we have Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner. That's why we have the leader of the Northwest NAACP who was Caucasian, but she still says she identifies as African American. And you see this play out when conservative or evangelical Christians deal with the LGBT community. So let's say that there's a guy named Joe, and Joe is in his workplace, and he knows that somebody he works with is, is gay. He thinks it's his job to share the Leviticus, the clobber passages, the Romans, the 1 Corinthians, which I believe. I believe all that is truth, but he believes that he needs to share that with that individual. And the person on the receiving end who's gay says, you just reduced me to my sexual orientation. That which you tell me I shouldn't do, you've just done. And you think that this is all that I'm about when maybe intimacy is really the smallest if not one of the smaller ways I identify as LGBT. You haven't taken time to get to know me, my experiences, my hurts, my pains, and they walk away hurt. And I think that a better way to do it is Jesus' way, spending time with people having deep convictions about theology, but also having deep relationships, getting to know the whole person and helping them to primarily identify with Jesus. And as Jesus starts driving all the domains of their life, I believe that it's within a context of trust and relationship that we can have difficult conversations about holy living.
1: mm mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that kind of deals with the sequence. Um, talk about the process of deciding to write the book. Um, what 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 led you to write the book
2: um, I had had several people uh, tell me that they that I needed to put something down when I would tell them my story uh, have a friend uh, who actually did the forward. his name is Kyle Adelman and he's the teaching pastor at Louisville or in Louisville at Southeast Christian Church wrote a book called not a fan another guy named Judd Hyde. I think even when I told you my story uh, I don't think you necessarily said write a book but you said wow well, you need Somehow that needs to be known. I remember, you know, it was just this consistent yep. theme. But I thought, man, I don't want to do that. And uh, I had uh, my friend Kyle, uh, his literary agent. His name is Don Gates. He got a hold of me and said, "This would really be a, a fascinating story," and I think it's for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote, you know, a couple of uh, chapters, and we signed a deal with Waterbrook Malnoma, and turned in my first draft. And felt so good about my first draft. For my first book, till I got my first draft back.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: And so uh, it, w- it was definitely an emotional process. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm glad that they have a good uh, editorial team. <laughs> you know, we didn't use a ghostwriter, but at the same time, because I'm so emotionally attached to it, I had other people around me that would say, This is sounding a little harsh. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to tone this down. Uh, my mother's partner and I, for instance, we really <laughs> never got along. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it it was not uh, – sometimes it was fun, but a lot of the times it was very tense with her, and we're talking about most of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I remember at one point the editor said, is her family still alive? Yeah. Do you have a good relationship with them? Yeah. Do you want to keep a good relationship with them? <laughs> and so um, it was definitely emotional. I don't think a lot of people uh, realize how emotional. R- writing your first book – I know you understand, but much less – Putting your whole story down on paper, mm-hmm. you get attached. It's almost like it's your baby, and here it is. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, so you're dealing with um, the background of your experience, having experienced some of this hostility. How how do you um, how do you interact with people and, and tell them uh, how they should interact with? Um, the gay community, because you obviously had experience of that's probably what not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what what's your take on on how how to engage? Uh, what, what's the what's the best way to think about this? And let me let me go back to something that you said earlier, and it goes like this: the difference between um, acceptance and approval. I like to make the distinction between um, we respect every person because every person's made in the image of God. Mm. That's the uh, that's the acceptance part. Yes, approval has to do with signing off on everything that they do mm-hmm. or say. That's that's distinct. So being able to keep that uh, that in place is important. And then the other the other way I like to talk about this tension that we're talking about is is that on the one hand there's a moral challenge for the way God calls people to live And the mm-hmm. in the standards that he reflects, which is a way of saying the most efficient, effective, authentic way to live is to live this way, mm. okay? But, uh, but you've got people who live differently. And the problem is that the very people who you want to challenge with those standards are the very people you want to invite into a new experience with God, which is the solution. So if you wall them off from going there, you've right. actually cut yourself off from the from the solution, so how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that balance?
2: I would say, uh, going back to something I alluded to earlier, uh, look at the whole person. I think when it comes down to it, we need to understand that people, each person we encounter, are made in the image of God, um, but we also carry with us a sin nature. We've carried with us hurts and pains done to us, and things that we've done and we have joys and experiences and upbringings. I mean, we're really a mosaic of experiences that have brought us to the point where we are today, Mm -hmm. including our story of redemption if we're in Christ. Um, But I think we need to quit treating people like pet projects, like uh, an opportunity to unleash our new evangelistic ninja moves on them. Mm -hmm. And we really just need to treat them like people and get to know the whole person. I believe that Uh, when we authentically build a relationship with people, uh, when we don't label people, I believe that God can use that. And again, that's what Jesus did. Unfortunately, again, in the Christian community, what we do is uh, when we refer to the gay community or the LGBT community, most of the time, I mean, most leaders that I know are referring to uh, the extremists, the political side of the uh, machine of Mm -hmm. that community. Uh, But I'm sure as you would agree, a lot of the people I know who are in same-sex relationships are pursuing them. Um, they're, they're really not part of that political machine. They want to live their lives, and they're not – they're as frustrated as you and I are with American politics. They're not interested in it. But unfortunately, the extremists make the m- most noise. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to understand, too, that people are complex, and they have depth. And uh, is, is having sex with somebody the same gender a sin? Yes, it is. But I believe that – I, I, you know, this is an identity issue, um, that there are some people that have no idea why they are attracted to people of the same gender. I've had people cry and ask me, I pray to God to take this away, and he hasn't. Why hasn't he? And I give them the best theological answer I can. I say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I said, but I know that I have a lot of unanswered prayers, too. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, my feelings can be deceptive and my feelings lie to us. That's why Proverbs 4.23 in the NCB version says, be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. Hmm. And so uh, that's why I put my trust in the Bible, I tell them. And uh, am I going to slip up? Yes, but I'm going to struggle. And so I think that when we realize that people have depth and when we seek to build an authentic relationship with them, I believe that God gives us margin uh, to be able to have
1: influence in their lives. So we're going to uh – come back on the other side and, and talk some more about the applications of all this because the story is uh, is a fascinating one and I think you have kind of an inside look uh, at 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 all the facets of this and and I do think that uh, the church is really struggling in many ways to figure out how to How to negotiate this tension between grace and the invitation into experiencing God's power and transformation with the idea of we need to stand up for certain um, convictions in the public square and in the way our society is oriented and, and how to keep that balance.
0: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Here's a question that I have, and that is How did you learn to process the the um, hostility that you were feeling as a child watching this because you yourself were not gay and so and yet you were watching people react to gay people around you who you knew and cared about. Um, how, what was that process like? obviously um, you had one reaction before you became a Christian and another reaction afterwards but how did you work through that?
2: It was difficult. I think about it, and I really uh, wrestled with uh, trying to understand how somebody could treat somebody else like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to remember, my mom and her partner were very justice-oriented. I mean, I knew who Harvey Milk was before anybody else. You know, in in, in my school, obviously knew who Harvey Milk was, a lot of kids in California now do, and so
1: you might explain who that is for people who don't know who Harvey Milk is. Yeah, he was uh,
2: he was a politician Mm -hmm. in San Francisco who uh, was uh, uh, shot by his opponent um, during uh, I think it was election night, if not close to election night. But he was an activist for Mm -hmm. gay rights, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was raised in that environment. But I, I made a big mistake. As a kid, and again, I didn't have any way to process this. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had a warped worldview because my mom, as an extremist, would allow me to watch things and do things that a lot of other kids wouldn't, um, even other probably lesbian uh, mothers wouldn't allow their kids to do. But I made sweeping generalizations of the Christian community, Mm -hmm. and I saw the extremism, and I thought, okay, this is how all Christians are. Mm-hmm. And now I realize, that especially in the 80s, extremism from the LGBT community attracted extremism from the Christian community. Mm. I mean, I think that's still true today, but I think that there's a lot more uh, sitting back and listening from the Christian community. Um, but I made that mistake, and uh, I went on a war path, and I guess some of my mother's justice qualities and activism uh,
1: reared itself in my heart as well. mm mm-hmm. And so uh, and so you came uh, you came to the Lord as you said were you in college when you came to the Lord or in high school I was 16 years 16. old 16 okay and and obviously this engendered a, a transformation in the way you were thinking um, and now th- 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 there's lots of irony in your story because you know on the one hand you're experiencing hostility as the child of gay parents <laughs> from Christians. You come to the Lord, and now all of a sudden all the hostility shifts, and the hostility is now coming from, uh, from your parents and people I'm assuming that you knew in the gay community for, for having, if I can say it this way, defected uh, <laughs> or, or, or betrayed your previous responsibilities. So how did that, how did that transition work? The best way
2: I can describe it is uh, we all have heard stories, seen videos on YouTube, or uh, we can ex- imagine the tension of a teenager coming out as a gay or lesbian to his Christian parents. Well, for me, Daryl is the opposite. Mm-hmm. I was a teenager coming out as a Christian mm-hmm. to my three parents. Mm-hmm. And the rejection that they feared from the Christian community and the rejection that they feared for me now that I was, quote, unquote, one of them, they, those, those mm-hmm. people, that's the same rejection they gave to me, mm. the same rejection they were fighting to say that this we need to not exhibit. Uh, they were exhibiting because this is such an emotionally charged topic. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, this is a huge issue. I mean, I remember somebody told me one time, well, you know, 2% or less people in our country identify as LGBT as gay or lesbian or transgendered, and honestly you mean you in our conversation uh, that we have had about softwired and hardwired that number is probably even smaller mm-hmm. but the re- the real problem is is that all of those people intersect with probably five to ten other people and so you multiply that in our nation and that's why this is such a cultural issue right now um it's a huge issue for our country right now, big time.
1: So let, let me let me. We're using terminology some people may not understand. when We talk about hardwired and softwired. So, uh, hardwired is the person who is ha, has gay attraction and has tried to shed it and is having difficulty doing so. And in fact, they question whether they can ever change. The softwired person is really the person who's made a choice into into a gay lifestyle. Like. They can, they can in some ways take it or leave it, and, um, and, and so um, you use that terminology. People use that terminology. It's my terminology, but people will use that terminology to describe the range uh, that exists among the gay community in terms of gay orientation. Some people will make uh, distinctions, different kinds of distinctions. Mark Yarhouse talks about a distinction, which he talks about the person who is who is drawn to a gay lifestyle but hasn't done anything with it yet. It's just um, kind of hovering on the edge. And then there's the person who who contemplates or steps in, but steps in. Um, hesitantly or out of curiosity or whatever, you know, that's the next step. And then there's the person who really identifies with it and kind of locks in. And so uh, one of the things that happens – and this is ironic – another irony of, your, of the, your story, it strikes me – is um, just as the gay person can generalize about Christians and think that every Christian, you know, is a – is just this staunch uh, person who doesn't want anything to do with gay people and you know is hostile towards them, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there are other people who are actually very sensitive towards the gay community, Christians who are sensitive towards the gay community, work hard to understand where people are coming from and interact with them. So also, uh, on the gay side, there's this range that you have to deal with, which explains why it's important. To actually get to know the person, the individual that you're interacting with, because they may not be in the same place as the person sitting next to them.
2: Hmm. Absolutely, I don't think that there is agreement uh, within the LGBT community. Even I mean, you, I mean, there's no way that you could generalize or do a litmus test. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one thing that I know is that the Bible, and I believe this, says that same-sex intimacy is a sin. Mm -hmm. But again as you would agree this is a deep emotional issue for many people especially those who identify as LGBT. Uh, There's so many different types of people. Um, Right now You know, I have uh, a group of people that I meet with every Tuesday night from 8 to 10 p.m. that attend our church um, that uh, even though they know that we at our church believe that God designed uh, sexuality to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman, they still attend our church Mm -hmm. because they also know that we believe that uh, a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to treat someone less, Mm -hmm. to devalue someone. So despite... What we believe theologically, they still attend our church. And even within this group of eleven to fifteen people, you have some that are single because of biblical conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have some that uh, are just confused. You have uh, like two couples in there, but one couple is even questioning whether or not they should stay together mm-hmm. uh, because of their Christian conviction. Um, we have uh, people, and I and I know people who are in same-sex relationships who are not intimate at all. Mm-hmm. But they've been together so long that that's not even something that they do. Their connection is deeper. And so there's no way we can do a broad, sweeping generalization. And that's why one of the the advice that I give to churches when I talk to their leadership or staff uh, about this issue and about how to handle it, which I've been doing a lot, is, hey, it's great to have policies. I mean, we have a staff policy book. We have an elder policy manual at our church. But especially with policies like this, we don't advertise them. Because you can't lump everybody under that, and uh, you know policies, if they're advertised and promoted throughout the church, they can hinder
1: conversations that need
2: to happen. Mm-hmm. So
1: let's let's talk about where you find yourself because this you've obviously made an effort to speak into this community. You've actually have a church that's drawn some people into your community. You say you've got people in your community who are in different places. Uh, let's let's work through that a little bit. And when, I think you said early on something like uh, 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 belong first or open door, and then I, I forgot exactly how you phrased it, but. Um, but it's an important principle. Um, so how do you how do you um, the the phrase I use was belong before you believe. Belong before you believe. That's right. And so, um, and and so and then of course there's the issue of then how do you deal with the with the people who then believe and then come into the part of the community. So so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you've got. Uh, you say some people who've made the choice to be uh, – th- they recognize that they're gay, but they've made the choice to be celibate. I'm taking that that's one of the groups that you have. They've mm-hmm. made it a conscious choice, They and they've – have they come into that in the midst of the transition from belonging to belief, or were they there before they – before you came and, and they just have happened to land in your church? What's the – Both. We've both? had both. Both? Okay. both. Um, and of course, this is the this is the approach uh, Mark Yarhouse has talked about, among others, and of course we've done several podcasts with him, in which uh, the person says, in effect, this is who I am. I understand this is who I am. Uh, y- usually this is a – we're talking about the hard wire on the spectrum. Uh, and f- for you to tell me I shouldn't say I'm gay uh, is to ask me to deny something about who I am that I recognize is something I have to deal with before the Lord. So, so that's that doesn't entirely work. But what they are saying is, is that my identity in Christ and my commitment to Christ trumps my sexual identity in some ways, and uh, and I am committed to that approach to things. So it seems to me that person should be. Very affirmed and supported in just about every way possible that the church can support them.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember watching a YouTube uh, video a while ago between uh, a guy named Justin Lee, who Mm -hmm. wrote a book called Torn, which I know you're familiar with, Mm -hmm. who's uh, very much affirming um, and a uh, non affirming conservative seminary professor. And I remember watching them go back and forth, and Justin Lee asked a question at the end that unfortunately the seminary professor glossed over, but I thought it was an important question for the church, Mm -hmm. especially with people who are single because of conviction or celibate. And he said, let's just say for sake uh, of argument, and this is my paraphrase, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're right and I'm wrong. What do I do now? Is the church going to walk with me? Mm -hmm. Is the church going to journey with me? Is the church prepared uh, to be there for me? when I get older, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, some people might dismiss it and say, well, I know a lot of married people where their spouses die now. They're alone and they're widowed. Well, I get that. But there's a difference between being single because of conviction in this issue and being a heterosexual single. If you're heterosexual and you're celibate, there's always a chance that you'll find somebody. Mm -hmm. But if you're same-sex attracted and you're celibate, you know that's not going to happen unless you find somebody of the opposite sex that you really develop deep emotional
1: connections you know, unless something with. Something changes. Something really changes. Which we have seen that. Yeah. Right. right exactly. We have seen that. Right. So. And it can happen. It does happen. It may take take time. You don't want to preclude that from happening. But the reality is, is that where the person finds themselves right now is the uh, the best way for me to, to to cope with and understand where I am is to is really to submit. Uh, this inclination to the Lord, and, mm-hmm. and let them, uh, uh, let them, uh, let His way be the way I proceed, and that needs the support of the church.
2: Absolutely, I mean this, as we talked about before, is really an issue of tension between grace and truth. Um, uh, you know, I love how Andy Stanley said at one time between theology and ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a real tension and. You know, our faith is already filled with tension, right? Right. Sovereignty and responsibility. It's life in the fallen world. Yeah, Trinity, yeah. one God, and so, yeah. you know, if we're comfortable and we have become comfortable with tension in our uh, systematic theology and thinking, why can we not be comfortable and, you know, realize that there's going to be tension when we deal with people who are fallen? Mm-hmm. And and
1: I think that the interesting thing here is is figuring out how to develop an environment in which people can be challenged, but they're challenged in a way in which people know that the people challenging them care. There's there's a expression I use when I speak about this regularly. Uh, I use the expression regularly, and it goes, uh, uh, people will not care about your critique until they know you care, mm-hmm. and so, um, so being able to, to create the environment where where healthy confrontation can take place, health and healthy reflection can take place, and and to some degree m- mutual learning because there are things the church needs to learn about interacting with LGBT people as well as in the midst of the moral challenge that's important. And your, your distinction between the pastoral uh, element and uh, your Andy Stanley quote's important because I think that the, on the one hand we've got the biblical standard that says this is the way God calls us to live. But we have the pastoral problem in reality that when a mother comes in with a child who says, My child just came out as gay, what do I do? You know, you aren't, the pastoral problem isn't simply to, well, Uh, You know, the Bible says – the Bible doesn't say have nothing to do with them. The Bible says to them, challenge them like you would any person who's in need of being restored by God, challenge them to be restored by God, challenge them to be reconciled with God, those kinds of things. So I would say that doing evangelism, it doesn't matter what it's about, has built within it the tension of drawing people out of where they are to a place where God can take them.
2: Absolutely. And I think uh, we try to do that in our church, and I know a lot of churches um, uh, where I have friends who are leading there, they try to do it too. And this is how I put it, that we try to give God margin. Mm -hmm. That when somebody walks through our doors, I don't care who they are, what they've done, or what they are in the midst of doing, I want them in there to hear the gospel, to have influence in their lives. And uh, we need to give God margin to work. Uh, Some churches, when they find out somebody who is visiting or somebody, one of their members has just come out, you know, this way or is doing something, uh, sometimes will overreact and will act harshly, and sometimes will even uh, 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 alienate them. And I know that every situation is different, but I've just seen this so much. And I'm thinking to myself, what about giving God margin? What about allowing people not to be perfect? What about understanding that God is the best at changing lives, not us. What about the fact that it's always taken God time and a process to break down pride around our heart? Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the principle of belonging before you believe is not pronouncing salvation on people, but when somebody comes to our church, we give them margin. We don't expect them to be perfect. And we know that God, as long as they're there, is in the process of, of
1: drawing them to himself. And so your approach is to really challenge them to let God go. Go to work, but to do it in a way that also um, wraps around them support that says that we we care about you, we mm-hmm. love you, um, we love you enough to challenge you on the one hand, Absolutely. but we love you also enough to be there for you. Absolutely, and uh, you know,
2: and and all this is to say, uh, you know, that that there are times. Um, not necessarily with this ish- issue, we've had to do this yet, but in other issues, we've had to do church discipline. I mean, every church does to some degree. We just don't announce it to everybody, but mm-hmm. uh, we've had to do that. Uh, and unfortunately, some people uh, eventually get to the point where they, where they run up to a barrier, mm-hmm. you know, and our barrier is our, our uh, theological belief on sexual identity, on sexual gender, and the expression of sexual intimacy. And some people, when they run up to that barrier, they don't like it. Mm -hmm. And uh, other people, when they run up to that barrier, they understand it and they stay there. And some people will leave. But even the people who leave, you know, I praise God that at least they were there for a time being. Mm -hmm. And who knows? Maybe God will bring them back, or maybe we planted a seed, and hopefully we haven't hurt them.
1: Now you say there are other groups. We we, we've got a, a other group that we've got to talk about, which is the people who are in the midst of. Uh, of trying to put this all together they uh, and, and the couple that has me fascinated that you've mentioned is the couple that's together that's debating whether they should stay together or not uh, mm-hmm. that's an, that's that's a fascinating category. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of how you are, are are walking with them in the midst of that process It's through very uh, slow conversation.
2: it is not through, uh, reciting Leviticus, Romans, First Corinthians, First Timothy, Genesis 19, so on and so forth. I think there's a time and a place to talk about holy living mm-hmm. and uh, the expression of sanctification uh, wherever somebody is, uh, especially on the other side of the cross. But um, you know that that is difficult because there are such deep emotional ties. Some. Uh, pastors, leaders, and Christians believe that you can just tell somebody to stop being gay, quote unquote, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop mm-hmm. dating girls that do. Mm-hmm. And you just need to stop. Well, for them, it's a relationship. It's emotional. It's somebody that you actually love and you have feelings for. And you don't primarily identify uh, as having uh, intimacy with this person uh, sexually. And so for us to say that and not take our time uh, walking with them through it is a difficult thing. And so uh, it, I would say move slow, uh, be intentional, um, always point them back to Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Point them back to Jesus. Point them back to Paul. Paul's the one that says in Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Mm-hmm. And I think that God blesses that. But then there's even another category within that, uh, Dr. Bach, where you, you know, I've, I've met couples before. Uh, they've been together for several years. They live in the same house, but They're not sexually active, and they sleep in separate bedrooms. But yet, they still call themselves "quote unquote" lesbian, or you know, we're gay. Mm -hmm. So, what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. I've had those conversations where I've said, "Okay, you, you know, your primary, your primary identity should be Christ." Mm -hmm. You know, and and I don't know why you. I mean, I understand why you're identifying yourself as a lesbian because that's part of who you are. Your your SSA, but at the same time. Why not just say I'm a daughter of the King? Why not mm-hmm. say I'm a Christian? I'm a believer. So I think there are so many different categories within this community that we need to uh, take time to understand.
1: Okay, well, I'm, uh, we're about out of time here. Let me let me ask you if you could summarize in about a minute. <coughs> it's a terrible question. Uh, the a couple of main things that you would hope people would would. Um, Taken, take to heart as they think about uh, interacting with LGBT people? What would those – I would, would
2: say that all of us side either either on grace or truth, and uh, either we want everybody to know that God loves them and or we want everybody to know what the Bible says. There are two types of people. And when we choose to live in the tension, uh, people on the grace side get drawn t- closer to the truth and people on the true side get uh, closer to the grace. And one of the biggest takeaways is that tension that we feel is love. Love is the tension of grace and truth is one takeaway. Another takeaway is love has no exception clause. And a third takeaway is that a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to treat someone less, to Mm -hmm. devalue somebody, to treat someone poorly. That we should be people who share the truth, uh, build relationships, and point people to Jesus. And sometimes we have to have tough conversations, but it always needs to be done in love.
1: So, uh, Caleb, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk to us about this. Uh, This is an area the church is wrestling with, and uh, the interesting thing about your church is is that you've actually managed uh, to – to balance this tension in a way that people are walking into it and saying, okay, I'm willing to walk through this experience by the grace of God, in front of God, and wrestle uh, realistically with where I am as a result. You've seen change. You've seen transformation. And you've you've learned a lot in the process, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to come in and share kind of your story with us to, to help people who are just – Trying to get located and how to go about this. It's great to be with you, sir. Well, thanks again, Caleb, and we thank you for being a part of the table. And we hope you'll be with us again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/the table. Dallas Theological Seminary: Teach Truth, Love Well.